from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, I want to begin by welcoming new members to our listener community. That's the Still Growing podcast group on Facebook, and new members this week include Kim Wanette and Bethany Pickard. So welcome, you guys, and if you really like the show, I'd like to invite you to join the Still Growing Podcast group as well. It's on Facebook, and it's a great place to ask questions. You can share your own garden stories and interact with the great guests that are featured on Still Growing and connect with other listeners of the show. And here's the secret. It's also where I post all of the really awesome garden giveaways and promotions from my guests and sponsors for my lucky listeners. And this week, our lucky listener that won the Gardener's Bible that was written by author Shelley Cram is Deb Verwolf Vorhorst. So congratulations, Deb. Shelley will be sending you a copy of the Gardener's Bible, and I know you're going to love it. Shelley did a fabulous job writing this devotional gardener guide to the Bible. So thank you to Shelley for offering your Gardener Bible for the giveaway. And congratulations, Deb. Well, the Facebook group is also where I curate content for listeners during the week. And I'll give you a sampling of some of the things that made it in the Facebook group this week. First up is an incredible time-lapse video from Planet Earth 2. And this was posted on thiscolossal.com. And they shared this stunning time-lapse footage from Planet Earth 2 series. It's a, a series that's on BBC, and it captures a wide variety of unusual fungi as it blooms at night. It is completely mesmerizing. Then woodlandtrust.org out of the UK posted a piece on foraging guidelines that is very, very helpful. It's a great post for foragers and gives advice on how to forage sustainably and responsibly to make sure that you are staying safe and within the law if you are a forager. There was also a fascinating article that appeared in Medievalist.net. Now, this piece was originally written in 2014 by Alan Tuwade, but it's all about how plants were illustrated in medieval manuscripts. And this was very important work because, of course, medicine and doctors of the time would rely on these manuscripts when they were making decisions about how to use plants and herbs to treat people. I also shared this really great Facebook post from Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, which is the new magazine that he is debuting in 2017. And I'm so excited for it. I've loved everything that they've done so far with their blog posts and their website. And this was something that they had shared on their Facebook page. They showed five pictures, the, a kind of a glimpse behind the scenes of Milk Street's editorial director who recently traveled to Mexico 
Mexico to cook and learn at the side of Diana Kennedy. So for decades, she's been chronicling the cuisines of her adapted country, Mexico. She's English, but she moved to Mexico in 1957, and they said she is a fount of knowledge. So in addition to teaching them everything from how to properly toast a tortilla to how to draw the deepest flavors from chipotles and adobo, she gave them a great tour of her kitchens and gardens. And then they'll be sharing two of her recipes in the next issue of Milk Street Magazine. But you've got to see these pictures. They're absolutely stunning, totally gorgeous, amazing. And I'm really looking forward to seeing more in their upcoming issues. So that's also a great thing, a great place to follow on Facebook. If you want to have some really positive, fun things showing up in your Facebook feed, go to Milk Street Kitchen, like and follow them. You'll be able to see all of this great content that they're sharing on their page. Well, TechCrunch this week featured a smart garden. It's called the Smart Garden 9, and it's a self-contained kitchen garden, an indoor garden for herbs and vegetables. And it's a really interesting article because when they last met this company called Click and Grow, they were selling a massive wall garden that was designed for indoor gardening. But their new product, this is all about their new product called Smart Garden, is a self-contained kit It's a pod. It's a kit pod for growing fruits, vegetables, and herbs. And it costs $129 on Kickstarter. And the system is pretty simple. You fill the water tank. You place small pods of soil, nutrients, and seeds in the unit. And then you turn it on. And it's automatically lit by a series of LED lights. And then the lights are able to be raised as the plants grow. So the entry level gets you all of these lettuce pods, but there's also seedless pods so you can grow anything you want. So what caught my attention about the Smart Garden was the very last paragraph in this article. And it said the company raised $4.1 million from investors and the Smart Garden 9 starts shipping next July. So July of 2017. And the TechCrunch writer was super excited about this kit. He said it looked like something that Apple would have made if it liked tiny peppers. And he said, I totally approve. So I'm very excited to check this out next year. Now, Eric Sanrud and our friends over at Mighty Axe Hops have been sharing really incredible images from Ben Boo, their, one of their founding partners, on his trip to Eastern Europe. And yesterday, they shared his final stop in Poland. He was at Big Powell's Farm, who apparently is the king of Polish hops farming. So he's seen working the baler. And then there's a couple of images of the actual hops farm itself. And this trip looks like it's been really, really awesome. So Mighty Axe Hops is another great page to follow on Facebook because of the content that they share. They do a really great job of sharing what they're doing behind the scenes, as well as sharing information about hops farming in general. On the recipe front, I passed along something from Lori Neverman of Common Sense Homesteading. She was previously on the show, and she shared her Grandma Catherine's old-fashioned carrot cake recipe. Then House Beautiful magazine shared Sophia Loren's tiramisu recipe. Sophia Loren wrote multiple cookbooks and was an expert home cook in addition to being an actress. 
And then the Washington Post had put the call out on Instagram for Thanksgiving recipes. And they sifted through more than a dozen photos and came across a simple yet tasty Norwegian recipe from Marissa Hermanson Muma, a resident of Richmond. And Muma submitted a photo of Lefsa. And she was planning to make it for the very first time this Thanksgiving with her Nana Sue. And she wrote, back in the day when my Nana Sue lived in Minneapolis, Minnesota, she used to make lefsa using leftover cooked potatoes from Sunday dinner. It's something she and my mom grew up eating, but it was never part of my upbringing. She had written that she had made it herself, but never with her Nana Sue. So for this Thanksgiving, for the first time, they were going to make this lefsa together. Anyway, after she tagged the post in her recipe through Instagram and then shared her story, their deputy food editor and recipes editor, Bonnie Benwick, tested it in their food lab. And then they live streamed this on the Washington Post's food Facebook page, another great page to follow. Speaking of following pages, the botanic gardens across the United States offer a lot of great content on their social media. The Cheyenne Botanic Garden had these fantastic pinecone turkeys that people could make for Thanksgiving. And then the Chicago Botanic Garden had this placemat, a printable placemat. And it was designed like one of those coloring book pages that you see all over the place. And it simply said, thankful for pollinators. So it had all of the food items that you might see at a Thanksgiving table that come from the garden. So it was a great printable. And along those lines, the Xerxes Society had posted a Thanksgiving message that simply said, cranberry sauce, pumpkin pie, green bean casserole, without the help of our pollinator pals, Thanksgiving would be no fun at all. Well, that's it for curated content in the Facebook group this week. And again, don't forget that you can join this group. You just have to go to Facebook and type in Still Growing Podcast Group and then click to join. And once I know that you're not a spammer or a robot, I'll admit you into the group. And you can read great content like this and interact with guests of our show. Today's show is featuring the Chicago Botanic Garden. And I was so blessed to get a chance to speak with Lisa Hilgenberg, the lead horticulturist of the Regenstein Vegetable and Fruit Garden. But first, Jody Zambolo is going to walk us through some of the marvelous events that are available to the public. It really is a wonderful place to visit. Well, welcome, Jody. I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's nice to meet you. Uh, my name is Jody Zambolo. I am Associate Vice President of Visitor Events and Programs here at the Chicago Botanic Garden, um, which basically means that my department is in charge of all of the public events that we put on here at the garden, whether they are free or ticketed uh, throughout the year. Free or ticketed? And how many big events are you putting together in a typical year? Right now, we're putting together about three major events during the year. So right now, we are working on Wonderland Express, which is our holiday event, and that runs uh, November into January. And then once that is completed, we start putting up our orchid show, which is our winter event. So the garden is an all-season destination, and it's a perfect way to get people to come in out of the cold and enjoy beautiful orchids in February through March. And then after the orchid show, what's the other big event that you have? So after the orchid show, we begin to work on our summer programming, which just includes like musical evenings, farmers markets, flower shows, things like that that just are spread throughout the summer season 
And then we start gearing up again in the fall for a big event that we just had this past year called Night of a Thousand Jack-O-Lanterns, which was a huge hit. It's a four-evening event where you can stroll through the garden at night and see huge artistic jack-o'-lanterns that are carved for us. And it was a great big hit, so we'll definitely be doing that again. And then, of course, once fall wraps up, we're back into Wonderland. <laughs> so what did you call this event, the Jack-O-Lantern? So it's called Night of a Thousand Jack-O-Lanterns. And yes, there are actually even a few more than a thousand pumpkins on site here at the garden. And it was an event that we just started this past October. It's a four-evening event, Thursday through a Sunday. And what we have are these about 60 to 70 large jack-o'-lanterns, like 150 pounds or bigger, that are artistically carved. So um, really intricate. And so artists sketch it out and then they shave the pumpkins, you know, and they scoop out the pumpkins and then put light in them so it shines through. And then a thousand little regular-sized pumpkins that are carved like you would at home. And it was a trail throughout the garden it took about maybe a half an hour to an hour to walk, wow. and it was a huge hit. We had almost 21,000 people over four nights. Oh, my gosh. Okay, we got <laughs> we to gotta back this up here a minute. So yeah. uh, who is carving all of these? I'm thinking in my own family. You know how many years we just say, screw it, we're not going to carve yeah, the pumpkin exactly. this year because it's so much work, <laughs> and you're carving over a thousand. What? Who is doing all this work? Well, we actually worked with a company called Rise of the Jack-O-Lanterns, and they're based out east, and they do this type of thing out east and out west, but this is the first that they've done in the Midwest, and they actually have artists that come in and sketch these pumpkins and then, you know, shave and carve them, and then they're trucked here. The thousand smaller pumpkins were actually grown in Illinois, and then people just carved those on site, so they hired some temporary help once they got here and just kind of, you know, carved those and got those out in two days. And then we set it all up, and people came. It was great. Oh, my gosh. Well, listen up, other botanic gardens. This sounds fantastic. Okay, now yeah. here's an interesting question. You have to light them all. What kind yeah. of candles did you use, and how yeah, long no. did it take you to light them all? Battery-operated, that's the key word. No, you did not. <laughs> so, really? Yeah, we did. Well, you don't, you know, you risk if you are lighting them with candles, you know, the wind, it's windy out here. And um, at night, you know, you can't be going around relighting them every time. So wow. they have, they being the company that we worked with, there was a person here on site and he and his crew would go around each evening and put the lights in them and charge them up or hook them up. Some places we had electricity, some places they were battery-operated. Battery and uh, then they, we were good to go. Holy Toledo. I can't even imagine. Was it gorgeous? Yeah. Did you guys take a lot of pictures? We did. We did. It was great. You could probably go online and, and check those out from this um, past October. But it was just a big hit. We had different sections. Um, you know, so there was like a, a sports section. We wanted it relative to the Chicagoland area and to the garden. Okay. So we did a sports section relative to all Chicago sports. We did a plant section um, of course, you know, being a garden, we have to do that. Um, we did Chicago Icon section, uh, wow. Day of the Dead. Um, and then, of course, just classic Halloween things. And you, it was the 50th anniversary of It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. So, of course, oh. we had to have that in there, too. Oh. Well, Jody, really great. you know, the, the crazy thing about what you do is that, of course, you want every event to be a smash hit like this was. But the downside is... 
that you probably have to do it every year if you really do knock it out of the park. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, we were signed up for next year and ready to do it. You know, it was, it, there were some long nights, but it was worth it. It was yes. great. Yes. Wow. That's fascinating. Well, I wanted specifically to talk to you about this Wonderland Express as well, because mm-hmm. this is something that you guys have done for a long time and you do it very well. Give us kind of a high level overview of maybe how it got started and what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we are going into our 11th year for Wonderland Express. It's become quite the family tradition here at the garden. And how it began is we have an outdoor railroad garden. And that's a big hit. And that's been around for over 15 years. Within the garden, not only are the trains, G-scale trains, but also landmarks that were built by a company down in Kentucky made out of all natural materials. So when you go through that garden, was such a big hit. And we decided, you know, how can we drive people here during the holiday? They love the trains. Let's bring that inside and make it a winter holiday exhibition. So we worked with the same company. We got a whole new set of buildings. Um, The ones in Wonderland Express are Chicago landmarks. And we have over 80 landmarks within the exhibition and about 10 trains that run all throughout um, the, the major uh, portion of it is in our Nichols Hall. And then, of course, you showcase the incredible horticulture. Um, it's just a great family tradition. And we, you know, average about um, between fifty and 55,000 people per year over a six-week stretch of this show. That's fantastic. Well, what I love about these types of gardens is they're kind of like a fairy garden in a way, but very, very specific to the holidays. And then, of course, with the trains. Mm-hmm. Has fairy gardening kind of enabled you to maybe secure materials that you wouldn't have been able to secure in years prior just because it became such a craze? Uh, they do. I, you know, we, we use the same structures year to year that have been made for us. But, you you know, you will always find something different in how we place them or where the bridges are. or And we do things to scale as well, not only with the buildings and the trains, but then our horticulturalists will plan the plants as well and, and get some trees and that, but well, plants that look like trees, so they're in scale with the buildings. And it just creates, you know, a wonderland. And, and you can come every year for the past 11 years and you still will see something different because it's never exactly the same. This helps draw people to the Botanic Garden, right? Because they'll come for that, but they may end up doing a greenhouse walk or a garden tour in other areas of your Botanic Garden that they might not otherwise see, right? That's true. And it depends, of course, on the weather because we are very weather-driven here. So we've been lucky the past few years that it's been uh, pretty nice for the majority of the exhibition and people do take advantage of that and walk around. And especially if we have a first snow, the garden is beautiful when you have a first snow. So people will definitely do that. But then, of course, you know, this is an all all indoor event. So it's nice for those days when it's not so uh, pleasant out that you can enjoy something indoors and you still get your plant fix, if you will, because there's so much horticulture. And then we have, um, along with Wonderland Express, we have other events that are part of it that, you know, help um, drive attendance and give people other options to purchase tickets for events that include Wonderland Express, but kind of go above and beyond. Oh, wow. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So we have a Christmas concert, a Hanukkah concert, 
Breakfast with Santa, which is almost sold out already. <laughs> That's oh our most popular one. We have a Holiday Cheers, which is a cocktail tasting event. Uh, that's always fun. And then some other free things that we include during Wonderland Express, like ice sculpting, a movie. You can go sit in our auditorium and watch some little half-hour holiday movies. We have caroling and different things like that. Um, a holiday market where you could do some shopping for the holidays. Um, so there's all different kinds of things that go on just as well. And for people coming from out of town, the part of the Wonderland Express that they might enjoy the most would be the fact that there are lots of areas that are set up to be almost like a miniature Chicago. Yes. So you, when you enter the exhibition, um, you're first welcomed by just the gorgeous smell of gingerbread. We brought back the gingerbread village this year, which we had not had for about the past three years. Um, so we brought that back. And then when you walk, when you begin to get into the train part of it, it, it is as if you are walking or driving from the south side of Chicago to the north. So, um, you know, you're going to see the museum campus. You're going to see Millennium Park. And you're going to see all the bungalows and Chicago Stadium. And then as you gradually get in, you know, you're going to, there's the great big uh, Michigan Avenue downtown scene, which is always a big hit. And this year, we have a uh, special appearance from the Outdoor Railroad Garden, which is Wrigley Field. We oh, can't wow. have Wonderland Express without Wrigley Field and the World Series champions, Cubs. Absolutely. Wow, that'll be exciting. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's going to be a huge hit, and I think that's going to uh, rival the downtown scene for uh, people stopping. That would be a great thing for people visiting Chicago over the holidays, just to swing in and take a look. Absolutely. And there's music in the background. And then as you go out, you go into the North Shore and there's an old English train platform. So it's it's really a great, great time. And then um, on certain days, we also have family drop-in activities for the children to give them something to do as well. And you're open, is it daily 8 to 5? So we are open from November 25th until December 15th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Okay. And then starting on December 16th until uh, January 2nd, we are open from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. So we're open later during the holiday break. Okay. Okay. Well, that'll be great for people to plan. Now, the next event that I wanted to talk to you about is the Orchid Show. Yes. How many orchids are we talking about here? Oh, so we probably have over 10,000 blooms as part of this exhibition. And we are headed into the fourth year of this show. So we're very excited. It was a great hit the first year we did it. It's a great way to get in out of the cold and really enjoy some color and warmth, which is needed during those, you know, long February, March days. And do you partner with the Illinois Orchid Society? So the Illinois Orchid Society is, yes, they're part of our flower show series here at the garden. And so what they do is one week during the six-week run, they do host a show, a show and sale. But they are also participating each weekend. Um, their volunteers come in and they'll show you how to repot an orchid and things like that. And they'll also volunteer and answer questions back in our greenhouse area where the majority of the orchids are. So it's a great partnership to have them along. And do you sell orchids during the orchid show? So we do sell orchids on the weekends. We have an orchid show marketplace. So on Saturdays and Sundays, uh, various vendors will come in and sell orchids or orchid-related 
artwork or things like that. And then what can beginners expect if they've never gone to an orchid show? What do you do? What's it like? And are you able to learn about how to grow and care for orchids? Mm-hmm. Yes. So we do great interpretation as part of our orchid show because we also want people to learn. We, we not only want them to enjoy the color and the warmth and everything like that, but also to learn about orchids and conservation and what we're doing here at the garden to help with that. Uh, this year in particular, we went with kind of a, a fun theme, which is orchids in vogue. So um, you'll see a lot of interpretation about how, how orchids have inspired modern culture, um, whether it be through artwork or corsages or books, different things like that. Um, but you'll also, again, learn about conservation and um, things like that with the orchids. So it's going to be really neat and how, you know, looking at all those different aspects of how much orchids have played a role in, in the media and culture. You know, I have a friend who's also a garden blogger and photographer. She's She just started her fine art photo gallery this past fall, and mm-hmm. her name's Beth Billstrom. And one of the things that she loves to photograph that she's very passionate about is orchids. Do Mm -hmm. you have some type of collaborative effort where you're working with photographers and orchids because they seem to be a natural photography subject? Yes, they do. And it's, it's funny when we, um, the first year we did this, how many people would come through with either, you know, like a high tech camera or just your phone and everybody was taking pictures. So I think it just lends itself to that. We do have, for those photographers that are very serious and have the tripods and things like that, we do um, limit the hours that they can come in only because with tripods, you can kind of, you know, impede the, the traffic flow and, and what people are trying to see. Oh, sure. But then we also offer um, some packages to come in as a group before uh, the orchid show hours. So, And one of our volunteers here at the garden is a uh, photographer and we worked with her um, two years ago and have these gorgeous prints that we display in our Crable Gallery during this time of year, which are always a big hit. So do you guys have any idea of how many people come to the Orchid Show every year? Yes. This year, actually, we are extending the Orchid Show by two weeks. So in the past, it's only been four weeks. But because we figure, you know, the weather's still, you know, not the greatest, spring hasn't come why not extend it another two weeks and offer people a longer time to come or even to come back if they came in the beginning? So we're expecting probably about 35, 36,000 people to come through over that six-week period. That's a lot. Yes. <laughs> Is that considered a successful orchid show by other botanic garden standards? Uh, I think so. I mean, it's successful for us. Um, you know, we... The one thing we do want to do eventually is um, we're having a campaign to build new greenhouse uh, here, uh, production greenhouses, so that we can produce our own orchids, you know, have more rare orchids as part of the show, which we currently do not have because we cannot grow our own. So eventually that will happen, you know, over the years. And so it'll, it'll be continually changing. But yes, it's a, it's a successful program. Absolutely. Wow. And I see that you actually have an orchid show photo contest for your visitors. Ah, yes, that would be our online people. So I know that that I think is somehow down, done through our website and you could submit the photos that you take. And I think we do that with other just regular garden uh, photos as well during the se- different seasons. So we're always trying to encourage people to share their photos with us because 
it's just a great place to photograph. Well, TripAdvisor gave both these events uh, five-star reviews, so they must be very beloved by people who have attended these events in the past. <laughs> oh, great. So that's so nice to hear. Yeah, I think so. I think I think we do a good job, and I think people really love it. And, um, you know, we just continue to build upon it and, and to make it an enjoyable experience for all of our visitors. Thank you so much for your time today, Jody. The Wonderland Express, the Orchid Show, and hey, even the Night of a Thousand Pumpkins, right? For next right. year. <laughs> exactly. That's great. All right. Well, encourage people to swing on by and check out all of these wonderful events at the Chicago Botanic Garden. And Jody, if people are looking for more information, how do they find that out? Where should they go? So the best place to do that would be our website, which is www.chicagobotanic.org. And you can uh, go there and find hours and information, ticket prices, dates, everything like that. That's great. And can they get tickets ahead of time if they want to be proactive? Absolutely. Buy online. We can. It's very easy and it's a great way to, to get that planned and know that you have it secured. Love it. All right. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. All right. Thanks for your time. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Well, that was a lot of great information from Jody Zambolo, the Associate Vice President of Visitor Events and Programs at the Chicago Botanic Garden. And now here's my interview with Lisa Hilgenberg. Lisa is the lead horticulturist of the Regenstein Fruit and Vegetable Garden. At Regenstein, visitors learn about the very best berries, large fruits, vegetables, and herbs for Chicago gardens, and also the most effective gardening methods to grow them to perfection. Lisa and I talk about all of this and more during our chat. Well, welcome, Lisa, to the Still Growing Podcast. Uh, yes, I'm happy to be with you, and uh, I am standing in a room full of only cinnamon ornaments that will be part of our Wonderland Express exhibit at the Chicago Botanic Garden. I'm a fellow Minnesotan, which is great. I love thinking about Minnesota. Um, I'm so proud to be from Minnesota, and I'm really a true Midwesterner. I grew up in Edina, and I went to Gustavus Adolphus. I grew up very close to nature and, and being surrounded with beauty, and um, I love the state of Minnesota. You would live in Chicago now, though, right? Yes, indeed. I live, uh, the Botanic Garden is located about 27 miles north of Chicago, north of the city. And we're very close to Lake Michigan. So um, while we tend to be close to Zone 6, 5B Zone 6 gardening zone, we're about, oh, I don't know, nine blocks from the lake in Glencoe, Illinois. Okay. Well, how did you end up working at the Chicago Botanic Garden in 2010? Specifically, you're the lead horticulturist of the Regenstein Fruit and Vegetable Garden in charge of over 50,000 vegetable plants. Well, I raised a daughter here in the north suburbs of Chicago, and she went off to college, and I decided to go back to school. And, you know, I have sort of agrarian roots from Minnesota and Iowa. I grew up with grandparents that both had farms, century farms, as designated by the Department of Agriculture in each one of those states. I grew up spending the summers at, at my grandparents' farm in Iowa. And I, I learned how to grow vegetables. I learned how to be outside and be part of nature. And we used to bring those pumpkins back to Edina and give them to our neighbors. And um, I've always found great satisfaction and pride in growing vegetables. And so it was the natural step. You know, I'd been sort of a North Shore gardener. I've had some beautiful perennial beds and some roses, a lot of boxwood. And I decided, you know, I needed to further sort of a passion that I had. So she went to college. I went back to school and obtained a professional horticulture 
uh, certification, kind of coupled with my college work in geology. Uh, Yeah, and and came on board at the Chicago Botanic Garden. I've been here seven years. I've been in charge of the fruit and vegetable garden for five years. So um, I guess I'll be going into my sixth growing season here. Wow, sixth growing season. Does it seem like it's been six years? Yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of work. (laughs) It's a lot of work. Well, Lisa, why don't you welcome us to the Regenstein Fruit and Vegetable Garden today? I was thinking that your motto could be Fructus Insulam, which is Island of Fruit, because I couldn't find a a Latin word for vegetable. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, welcome to the Fruit and Vegetable Garden. The Latin word, I did do a little bit of looking up here. (laughs) Vegetar means to enliven. And um, there's an old French word for vegetable um, from a Latin word that means to live and grow. So uh, that's exactly what we're doing here in the fruit and vegetable garden. We have 3.8 acres of edible landscaping that's situated on an island, which does certainly help me with pest control. We're growing one of each type of edible plant that can be grown in the Midwest. So I have a collection of permanent plants as a living museum that is made up of about 600 taxa. And that collection ranges from stone fruits and apples to small soft fruits, including currants and strawberries and gooseberries. And we have lots of different grape cultivars, both wine grapes and table grapes. And then along with that is an annual vegetable program that has us planting about 50,000 annual vegetable starts each year in three successions of planting, spring, summer, and fall. So in the spring, you might see enormous hanging baskets of of edible plants, vertical wall growing, growing in cold frames, certainly growing in the ground. And then summer finds us planting all the warm season crops, uh, tomatoes, eggplant, squash. So we try to have one of everything for Midwest growers. And we try to display those plants in ways that will empower people to grow in using different methods in their home gardens or small market farms. And we harvest about 6,000 pounds of produce from the vegetables. I have a couple of orchards as part of that four-acre island. So I have an apple orchard of 40 different cultivars. <laughs> and I have um, a stone fruit orchard that's brand new that I've been uh, working on designing. You know, there's a circular walk that goes around the whole perimeter of the garden. The Chicago Botanic Garden has a wonderful app that will guide you on a tour and notes, points of interest, plants of interest. Uh, You can check out what's in bloom. And I encourage everyone to download the Chicago Botanic Garden web app before they come. Okay. If you can grow it in the Midwest, we'd like to have one of them. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to diversify our collection and as a living museum on display for, you know, we have over a million visitors a year. So welcome to the island. That's amazing. Now you mentioned going to your grandparents' farms in Iowa. Where were they at? So my my, uh, mother's family is from southwestern Minnesota. And that farm is now part of a heritage farm project. And so it's been preserved. It's close to Westbrook, Minnesota. Um, kind of in that big snow belt of, of of Minnesota. My father's farm that we still have in our family after 135 years is in Forest City. So that's in Winnebago County. And that's where I grew up really spending some time in the summers, learning about taking care of the animals, riding on the tractor, 
planting pumpkins with my grandfather. I bet our paths have crossed a few times. I know I went to Gustavus for a year, and then I'm from southwestern Minnesota. I grew up in Worthington, and my husband did. did as well. Yeah, so small, small world, Lisa. <laughs> it is a small world. In fact, my mother has been to, I, I'm sure I've been to Worthington over the years. Oh, I'm sure you have. Yep, southwestern Minnesota, <laughs> and you nailed it. It is Snow City. I have so many pictures yeah. growing up of standing there looking like the little boy in that Christmas story and I'm bundled in my snowsuit and you can only see my eyes and there's just snow all around. So tremendous snow belt in there. I remember walking on the clothesline Yes, in the snowbank. I remember just there being so much snow where that people couldn't get out. Yeah. Really amazing. Yeah. Very different. You know, people can't even imagine this, but it is why some of the perceptions of Minnesota exist is because of these pockets where the weather can get so terrible out on the prairie. But, you know, this fall we are having, uh, they just said on our local television station, this is the latest fall, longest, warmest weather that we have ever had in Minnesota. So people still have not put their gardens to bed here. We're still hanging on. I have a ginormous concrete planter out front with all my annuals in it. And they're just happy. I've got geraniums and all kinds of things in there. And they're just going to town. They look like they're brand new still. So it's amazing. It's amazing. You are in this specialized part of the Chicago Botanic Garden, but the history of this place goes back so far. In fact, it can trace its origins back to the Chicago Horticultural Society, founded in 1890. And I loved the old motto that they had. They had herbs in orto, meaning city in a garden. And the society hosted a nationally recognized flower and horticultural show. And you and I were talking in the pre-show chat that there is this fantastic book that has many images and it's a gorgeous book that would have some of the history of the Chicago Botanic Garden and specifically this horticultural society. Can you tell us about that? Sure, absolutely. The book is titled Chicago and its Botanic Garden. And it's a beautiful big coffee table book. It's the Chicago Horticultural Society at 125. So it's the 125th anniversary book, all about the history of this organization. Kathy Jean Maloney wrote it, who is a wonderful Chicago historian. I might just read one little section in the preface. In 1890, in a small meeting room in the now defunct Sherman House Hotel in downtown Chicago, a civic-minded group organized the Chicago Horticultural Society for the encouragement and promotion of the practice of horticulture in all its branches and the fostering of increased love among the people. And I think that the Horticultural Society has been in spaces down on Michigan Avenue in Chicago, and then eventually through a partnership with the Forest Preserve of Cook County was able to develop a beautiful botanic garden outside of the city in in about the mid-70s. The garden area where I work was developed uh, in the mid-80s, early to mid-80s. And so we're a relatively young garden in terms of property, but the history of the Chicago Horticultural Society and the importance that it's meant to Chicagoland gardeners is certainly in place. And I think that's been evidenced in what I've been able to research through my work, some of the historical varieties that you would have found at important times in Chicago history, one being during the Victory Garden time in World War I and II, 
really we were able to come up with all kinds of Vaughn Seedhouse catalogs and, and Burpee and some of the catalogs that were making these seeds and plants available to Chicago gardeners. So the Chicago Horticultural Society was celebrated a year ago for its 125th anniversary and book is a wonderful perspective on that time and the importance of this garden. And potentially a great Christmas present idea too. That gorgeous. I know I'm going to be checking it out. You know, one of the things that I thought was so fascinating as you and I were talking before this show, that it just has not been that long. It's been what, 50 years at most that the Chicago Botanic Garden has been in place. You guys are probably coming up on your 50th anniversary here soon. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just going to say, you know, it's been interesting to travel through time and, and sort of plant plants um, in ways that are interesting to American gardeners. And so that's been sort of a personal interest of mine as I've traveled parts of Europe and through this country to just look at different planting patterns and the importance of vegetable gardening as sustenance and how those plants were laid out. And I think that ties into sort of the Victory Garden time and we try to display those themes and techniques in the botanic garden out in our certain vegetable garden so that people can nostalgically connect with some of those times and plants. It's a busy place. I've said this over the years, but I'm, I'm sure that every single one of those million visitors that come to the Chicago Botanic Garden eats. And I'm certain that most of them come out to the fruit and vegetable garden <laughs> to see and sort of be inspired and to grow and vegetables in different ways. People need to truly appreciate the fact that this botanic garden is really on an island, which has to do a lot of wonderful things for you, especially in the area of pest management. Unless they're willing to swim to get there, they're not going to get to your garden. (laughs) That's true. Yes, being an island certainly helps with uh, pest management. Although I think this year, the avian marauders have been bigger trouble than anything else. The pairs of mallards and the geese and then just the shoreline birds, sparrows and things have really nipped at some of our brassicas and some of the vegetable plants in the garden. You know, we're always, it's a battle with nature and because we're growing organically, um, we're following USDA protocol for organic growing. We have to tolerate a little bit of that damage, but we're using a monofilament wire and post set along some of the shoreline plantings that we need to protect. So we have a, a terrace in particular that we like to protect all season long. It's fully planted still, but it has this nice wire that would sort of catch a goose right in the neck area and just deter him from coming up to have a feast. Oh, that's clever. Do you have to worry about flooding? The, the water does fluctuate in level. So it's a very functional system. We've um, just renovated the shoreline and we put in semi-aquatic planting shelves on many sides of the shoreline so that the island stays intact. We're not losing any uh, any soil. And what that does is also sort of deter some of the birds and certainly creates nesting places and... but. In a way, some of the taller plants can help deter some of the the pests. So we've had a muskrat that's been problematic. He's been eating some of those shoreline plants. But we do tolerate a little bit of that. It's so much fun to see them, and it's great for Chicago to be able to see that 
sort of natural wildlife. There was this lovely post by Katya Sabin about meeting you at the garden in wintertime. And I know that you do a lot of work with the garden bloggers that are in the Chicago area, inviting them in and showing them what you've got going on. But you shared with her specifically how you work with the cycle of nature to handle challenges in the garden, avoiding the quick fix mentality that goes with spraying. Do you have some insights or advice to give home gardeners to get them started down this path? Absolutely. It's a great question. And I think we're interested in sustainability as translated to an urban setting for backyard gardeners, even container gardeners. And we're looking at that sort of from a systematic approach. So we're looking at that beyond organic growing. While we're not certified, we are following USDA protocol for organic practices. But I think we've expanded the sense of sustainable growing a little bit further. And I think just looking at the cause and effect, taking a systematic approach to gardening is something that home gardeners can start to think about. Gardening is so cyclical. There are some just general pieces of advice. And one is very simple. Stop spraying. Stop spraying herbicides and pesticides until you really know exactly what you're up against. I think that by watching the cycle of of nature and, and becoming a weather watcher, learning about pest cycles, you can focus on feeding the soil rather than troubleshooting on the plant or feeding the plant. We're displaying practices of no-till, so we're teaching people how to broad fork. We're building soils through composting, through crop rotation, cover cropping, which we have displayed now. We grow typically six or eight different cover crops so people know how to select those according to what they're trying to overcome. We have a couple of different composting displays so people can learn. We have a three-bin composting method. We're displaying a few ideas as far as that goes. We're also doing an interesting water project where we're conserving water and using sustainable watering practices for all of these plants. We have a rainwater harvesting tank that's on the roof behind our garage, and on the roof of the garage is a solar panel that powers that pump, which takes the water out to some of the small fruit beds in the orchard. And that's a great way for a home gardener to start thinking about saving water and watering at the right time of day. So we're interpreting some of these concepts garden-wide. So that's a very long answer to your question. Well, people have to understand that there really is a multitude of other options that substitute for spray. And it's hard sometimes because we we always like that one-to-one ratio. Well, if I'm not spraying, then I'm going to do this. And there's more than, than just one option available to people. What would be an example maybe of something that you combated in the garden this summer that somebody might have before these better practices maybe reached for spray? And in this case, you said, no, we're going to try this. Oh, gosh. Um, Let's see. We have an entire plant healthcare department that monitors closely what's going on throughout our garden. So we do spray and we're following that protocol for using biorational pest control. So those are plant-derived and natural pest controls. Oh, okay. Um, We do have a series of of orchard sprays. So I have um, stone fruit and apple orchards that are on an eight-spray schedule. But all of those cereals adhere to the organic protocol. So okay. um, uh, they're OMRI-approved. Uh, the Organic Review Institute is a group that's associated with the USDA, and they certify or 
or um, recognize products that adhere to that practice. So if a home gardener goes to the garden center and looks for the OMRI sticker on a bag, O-M-R-I, that's a good thing, and they're, they're following that protocol. Um, as far as annual vegetables, we do a weekly spray of BT um, on brassica when we start to see cabbage moss and have problems. The other thing I think a home gardener can really think about maybe studying or practicing is planting the, the right crop at the right time. So planting cool season vegetables when the time is right. Yes. So uh, April 15th in our zone 5C to 6 garden is perfect timing and you can beat a lot of the problems because certain pests have not shown up. The temperature hasn't been warm enough yet. Another technique that we use is just making sure that all the crop residue is cleaned up from a garden and making sure that any overwintering habitats are cleaned up, grasses and potential piles of leaves and things are taken away. Overwintering insects can be a problem. So Mm -hmm. we want to make sure that the garden is really cleaned up and put to bed for the winter. Okay. So you cut your grasses down then? No, not necessarily. I think there are areas that we keep keep up for the winter. I think that winter interest is subjective. Um, I think each gardener needs to make that decision based on what plant we're talking about and what the interest is. For us around vegetable beds, we make sure that everything is very, very cleaned up. I don't have a lot of ornamental grasses or grasses planted around those areas, so that doesn't seem to be a problem. I do have pollinator strips lining the shoreline and aquatic planting shelves filled with native plants, and many of those are cut back for the winter. They're plants that provide a bloom sequence for insects throughout the year, but then in the fall, we do cut them back last thing at freeze time in December clean that up. Okay. That's interesting. Well, I love that picture that I saw of the cold frames that are on your property that these carpenters had built. They look absolutely deluxe. They have these hydraulic lift lids and heating coils. How do they work? Cold frames are a wonderful technique to growing plants, extending your season, providing protection for your plants. I remember when my father built cold frames in the back of our garage when I was growing up. So it was something that was certainly very useful in Minnesota in your cold garden areas. (laughs) I think that generally speaking, a cold frame can be used throughout the year in different ways. So for spring, I mean, it's a place that you could certainly start seed with some bottom heat. I have a little heat coil under about a foot of soil, and then over that is sort of like a mini greenhouse. It's a plexiglass window in a door that lifts up, so it's really just like a lumber box that's on the ground. We can lift the lid, we can see the soil, the heat coil is underneath. So what that does is heats up the soil. Typically, we think of it as being about, oh, a gardening zone or two warmer than you would have outside. Okay. Um, You can expect that you could start some seedlings in the spring earlier than you normally would. So I typically, just from what I've gathered in the last five or six growing seasons here, is that I can extend my season by about four to six weeks on either end of our regular gardening season. And in Chicago, that's about 170 days. So we typically think of October 23rd as our first frost date and then about third week in April, something like that as our last frost date. So we can extend that season on both sides. It's good to raise some early crops of lettuce, radish, spinach, maybe some annual flowers could be started there. And then those seedlings can be put out in the garden. You know, you've already got a jump start on your spring vegetable garden. 
Also, you know, it's a nice place to protect new seedlings that may come up from a greenhouse or that you purchase at a garden center. Um, you can put those seedlings in their plastic flats inside the cold frame, and they're protected from wind or they're let harden off as the weather becomes warm in the afternoon. You can open the door, and then you can still protect them at night. So it's a great place for that. You can also start warm season vegetables in cold frames as the season moves into April and May. So they're very, very, very useful. You can grow salad greens in the winter. I've stored bulbs that have been potted up for forced bloom. And so you could certainly store containers of bulbs in cold frames. They're a wonderful tool. And you can make them very extensively. I think online there are some resources for, you know, repurposing and reusing old doors with windows in them and building your own. That sounds like a good undertaking, especially to extend that season. Well, you wrote an incredible post called Food for Thought, celebrating vegetables of the 1890s. And it was eye-opening for me to read this article. Could you share your thoughts on this post and why it's important for gardeners to know about seed preservation, as well as maybe comment on where you guys get your seeds for your gardens? Sure. Sure, absolutely. So that post was written in as we celebrated our 125th anniversary of the Chicago Horticultural Society. And that gave home gardeners the opportunity to see some of the plants that would have been planted in a Chicagoland garden in 1890. We did a little bit of research and we looked at some old seed catalogs in our rare book room at the Chicago Botanic Gardens Lenhart Library. And I was able to find an 1891 Doors and Harrison catalog, and there was an old Burpee catalog, and then Vaughn Seed Store catalogs were just full of vegetables that would have been important at that time. Hmm. And I was so completely taken with the stories that went along and sort of the utilitarian sense of these plants and how important they were for, for people. They added spice to their kitchen. They enabled growth celery and parsley and onions and some of the things that were so important in those kitchens. And I think there was a sense of nostalgia that went along with that. It was, I was able to really connect to Chicago history. And to me, that was so appealing. The story of why heirlooms are so interesting and all of that is part of the reason that I'm here as the horticulturalist. I think it's, it's been my passion to sort of follow my agrarian roots, my personal agrarian roots through career. And my grandmother from Iowa came to the World's Fair in Chicago in the 30s, and she drove across you know, the plains into Chicago, into the big city, and uh, was on her honeymoon, and she attended the World's Fair. There was a tomato that she tasted called Dijana Lee Golden Girl, and it was the taste test winner for 10 years at the Chicago World's Fair. And she wrote about it in an old diary, and it was so the story was so captivating to me that I was able to trace that tomato to Seed Savers Exchange in Decorah, Iowa, and oh, wow. I was able to find a tomato and grow it here. And I've grown it for several years, and it's been absolutely the most interesting story, and it's connected me to my sort of personal history through vegetables. And I think that's really one of the definitions of what an heirloom is, and that's that nostalgia, certainly. We know what heirloom means, and that is that it's an open-pollinated plant that can reliably reproduce itself for generations. So unlike a hybrid that is the best qualities of both a mother and a father plant, an heirloom, you know, the, the hybrid would likely revert uh, back to one of those parents in the second generation. So 
We're teaching seed saving techniques and selecting the right open pollinated plants for seed saving. And I think it's heirloom seed preservation is important. It, it preserves our agricultural history and it allows us to grow unusual varieties that may not be available, you know, in the garden center. So when you are buying seed for the garden, do you yes. have a specific source or a couple of sources that you go to for seed? And when you're buying the seed, do you focus on heirloom seeds? We grow a combination of heirloom and hybrid seeds. And last year we grew them in a special, I did tomatoes in an heirloom area. And then I grew them so that visitors could compare them to what the hybrid bed looked like. So it was a very interesting trial. I source seeds from all different sources throughout the country. I have a list of 10 or 15 seed houses, uh, distributors that we work with. So we have lots of events and different contacts in the seed industry. I was just at Johnny Select Seed uh, last year in Maine, and that's a wonderful source of information and highly recommended for the home gardener, Johnny Selected Seed. They provide so much growers information. And so if you're selecting a cover crop or if you're, you know, needing some information about soil temperature and some of the ins and outs of growing, that's a wonderful resource. We buy local and a local seed house that is, or at least, you know, a Midwestern seed house would be the Seed Savers Exchange. And many of our heirloom plants and seeds are sourced there. Certain crops are better purchased close to home. Sure. Brassicas things like that. So they've adapted to our climate and our, our weather and our soil type. I try to spread it around. We use a lot of different seed sources. There is a beautiful series of vertical garden pictures that I've seen that are at Regenstein. Can you help home gardeners who are interested in doing some type of vertical garden? It seems like an overwhelming challenge to most people. What tips do you have for people who want to try to have a vertical garden next year? Sure. Well, building a vertical garden is really simple as lumber, wide, inch-by-inch landscape mesh or wire, and then um, landscape fabric. We've just mounted a lumber frame on top of a brick ball and we it's about a foot deep and we fronted that with a piece of wire and behind that is plastic that we cut holes in and so it is irrigated up through the top and I can certainly reference a kit or some sort of a drawing if anybody's interested in seeing more detail on the vertical wall. Many of the modern vertical walls have hinged backs so that you can open them almost swinging them open like a door and then you can work from the backside as well. We start our plants in the greenhouse in our production facility at the south end of the Botanic Garden. And then those plants come up as two-by-two two vegetable starts. So I think plant selection is very, very important. And then we can just plug those plants into the vertical wall. So the vertical method of growing is so interesting. It doubles your garden space. It creates interest on plain walls in urban settings. It's great for a garage wall. So I think starting with a good plan and deciding how uh, you're going to build the vertical wall and then selecting the right plant. I've found over the years that heirloom lettuces and kind of vegetable tapestries look so beautifully grown in a vertical method. So I have six different lettuces in the vertical wall now. Uh, Deer Tongue and Borel and Schloss and some of the black-seeded Simpson, beautiful, colorful lettuces grow in cool seasons. 
In the summer, I love to see herbs in the vertical wall. Oregano's are so, they root in so deeply and strongly. And so they're a wonderful selection for the vertical wall. Thyme is great. And then I've also grown strawberry, which kind of hangs down and is just charming in the vertical wall. And we just typically take care of it by grooming the plants and making sure that they're in good form. We can harvest from the outside leaves of those plants to keep them growing. And then we water directly in the face of our vertical wall. So we take our time and we water thoroughly and deeply twice a week, probably for the vertical wall, because it does tend to dry out more quickly. Our soil is, we just use a grower's mix to plug in around each plant. And occasionally, midsummer, we'll put a little bit of compost tucked in if something is loosening. But for the most part, it's really straightforward. Maybe fish emulsion or a diluted foliar feed would be a good thing to think about for midsummer as well. Okay. I was talking to a gardener the other day and they said, I just think that when you're doing a vertical garden, you should start with the vertical garden horizontal on the ground and give plants a a chance to kind of root in before you set them up and so that they're absolutely vertical. Do you guys do that or do you just go right at it? It's vertical, you've got the wire, you've got the plastic and you can just start putting plugs in and you don't worry so much about giving them time to root first. The vertical wall is a permanent fixture at the Botanicus. So it hangs on the wall all year round. So the plants that, that we place in the vertical wall we don't direct seed in the vertical wall. We plant plants that have been grown on greenhouse benches, so they've been growing horizontally, and then we kind of plug those into the openings in the permanent vertical wall. Okay. And then like now, now that the growing season is pretty much done, do you empty out everything? Like do you take out the soil? Do you, I mean, just start with a totally blank canvas next year, or do you just take out the plant material? We pull out the plugs, we take out the soil block and the plant material, or we've harvested all of it, and then some of the soil stays behind. You know, it's deep enough that your hand won't fit in all the way. So I think home gardeners have made vertical walls out of pallets, which is a great depth. Lettuce is fairly shallow rooted, so if you have a narrower vertical wall, you might select um, lettuces. Certainly stay away from root vegetables. um, And Yeah. Yeah, and annual flowers work really well in a vertical wall. Pansies, parsley is another plant that has been really wonderful. Yeah, so I think I would install the vertical wall and then, you know, it becomes heavy once you've planted it, if you're planting it on the ground. So I would install your vertical wall where it's going to be and then I would plant some vegetable starts in it. Okay, Okay. Now you have some vegetable classes that you offer. What are some examples of things that people can learn by coming to some of the classes that are offered at Regenstein? Sure. So the Joseph Regenstein School of the Botanic Garden is has incredible offerings, and I encourage anybody who's interested in the variety um, and the depth and breadth of these classes to look at our website. I specifically teach some basic vegetable gardening classes. We have some six-week classes that provide sort of ongoing support for vegetable growers. We've done a few classes that are seasonal, so spring, summer, and fall in the organic vegetable garden sets people up with sort of a, a coaching experience so that they can plant a spring garden and then they can come back in the summer and they can talk about challenges and successes that they've had 
It includes everything from site selection to watering techniques, plant selection, harvesting techniques. We're also teaching some interesting classes this year at our January seed slot, which is the 21st and 22nd of January. We're going to be teaching a vegetable class, just a how-to grow vegetables. And then in the afternoon, we're going to teach a class about planning your garden for seed saving and what goes into planning your garden. So what are the space constraints? How many of each plant do I need to plant for proper seed saving? How do I seed save? What's proper storage technique? Uh, We're going to cover it in that planning your veg garden for seed saving, which is exciting. I also have a class that I taught last year and will be teaching again this year that's specific to strawberries. So it's um, just growing strawberries. And it's a class on a Saturday and it starts sort of in the, you know, the history of strawberry hybridization and, and how that strawberry became so popular here, why the French kings loved it so much, and uh, just the challenges in growing strawberry, the transportability, disease pressures, and every student goes home with the techniques to plant strawberries in different ways, and they go home with a bunch of bare root strawberry plants. So I feel that if you put plants in their hands, they're going to be destined to go home and start their garden then. So growing strawberries will be a lot of fun again. Um, Yeah. Now, my other question for you with regard to strawberries in particular is how concerned are people about the spreading issue with strawberries? Because they can take over so quickly. Cultivar selection would be the most important thing when it comes to growing strawberries. There are many uh, wild strawberries and different species that can be very problematic in the garden. So selecting the right type of strawberry would be very, very important. Our June-bearing, ever-bearing, stay-neutral strawberry is a wonderful plant that can perpetuate itself. And I think California growers see that as a benefit because the June-bearing sends out runners and they can, you know, grow the June-bearing strawberry for several years just because they can propagate it themselves through that runner. So selecting the right, right type of strawberry is really, really important from the beginning. If you have a strawberry that you're interested in growing, an alpine or, or some of the um, wild strawberries, you could certainly put it in an area that's a bricked-in area somewhere so that it won't spread. <clears throat> I have a couple of areas here that are, are thick with, you know, there's a weed that looks like a strawberry as well. So I think making sure that you have a June bearing, which are the most delicious dessert strawberries they produce once a year. They should be um, controlled the first year by removing the flowers and then allowed to fruit the second year because you'll have a really strong mother plant. And uh, then they're ever-bearing and, and day neutrals would be plants that would produce during the summer successively, or I guess in the case of day neutral, twice a year. Plant selection is really important. And they seem to be very popular strawberries in the industry these days. I know that some of the seed companies have new cultivars that are very easy to grow and you can find out a lot of information on plant labeling and then all the web apps and, and things that people are offering as plant support with, you know, new releases like a strawberry. I love that. Well, and you know, I always love seeing the kids, their reaction to a strawberry that's blooming, um, a strawberry plant that's in bloom, because they're always so blown away that that beautiful little flower is going to turn into a strawberry. They're they're so pretty, aren't they? They're so pretty. Absolutely. They're just the most the beautiful plants. We have a strawberry that we found in, when I was looking at the 1890s um, project, we found a strawberry called the Marshall strawberry. And I found it in an old seed catalog. And it was a strawberry that was 
easy to grow, very productive, a June-bearing, delicious, big, quarter-size or 50-cent piece-size strawberry that disappeared. Victory Garden time to the 70s was really unavailable in the marketplace. And it's something that we've been able to find again and are growing now. And we're going to talk some more about that this year. But we have a sort of plant conservation approach to this strawberry called Marshall. And um, it's a wonderful plant, wonderful June bearing. I encourage people to grow strawberry because it's a great landscape plant. Not only a plant that needs to be in a four by twelve vegetable bed, it could be an edger in a perennial bed. It could be grown in baskets or window boxes, or in our case, the vertical wall. So it's a flexible part of edible landscaping. You have written a post about gardening gift book recommendations. You did last year for the Chicago Botanic Garden. I read it. I thought it was a great post. Would you have a list of top 10 books that would make your gift list for gardeners this year that people could maybe look at and draw inspiration from? Sure. Well, I can share a couple with you. You know, I've I've been reading the Plant Lovers Guide books this year, which is their Timber Press books, Topic Sedums, Magnolia, Dahlia's, I encourage home gardeners and experts, people who are interested in just learning about another group of plants, to check out these books. They're a manageable size. They're packed full of expert information. So the authors are botanic garden professionals, um, nurserymen, you know, growers, and the breadth of plant information is incredible. So the Plant Lover's Guide to Books. Gardening by month, by state, I think is a wonderful approach for really specific information to your garden area. And that's Quattro Press has the Gardening by Month, by State series. And I would encourage people to check that out. You know, it's funny when I was thinking about this question, I still go back to Rosalind Creasy's Edible Landscaping book, which is one of my favorites. And it lives on my desk and on my bookshelf. I have so enjoyed meeting her through the years and and using her book. She has she's a landscape architect. She's a cook. She's a, a wonderful gardener. She's a photographer, and she has a beautiful aesthetic. and And she's sort of the mother of edible landscaping in a lot of ways. And that book is just a coffee table book. It's just wonderful in the middle of winter to look at her color combinations and her culinary combinations. She plants the Asian garden or the pepper patch. So she's got some great ideas about using edibles. And then I'm busy reading the Seed Savers Exchange new book. It's called The Seed Garden. And it's a terrific book. The publications that are put out by Seed Savers Exchange are just top notch. And much of the classes that we'll be teaching will be based on some of the techniques that we're learning from the Seed Savers Seed Garden book. Amy Goldman has a new book, Heirloom, an heirloom book that is exquisite. And I guess, too, just because I like him so much, is Craig LaHoulier's Epic Tomatoes. I've gotten to work with him in the last year. And so that book, I think, is a wonderful book on tomatoes. Again, on our website is the list of 10 books that we put together for last year. And then we had some success with that. So then we put together an additional 10. So you should find 20 available through the Chicago Botanic Garden blog site. Oh, that's a great list of resources. I love the the list that you came up with. And I agree that the plant lovers books are fantastic. I interviewed Robin Perer of the Her Hardy and Geranium book that was in the Plant Lovers Guide series, and that'll be coming out later this year. But 
That was a tremendous book. I absolutely loved that. They're so in-depth, and they really give useful tips just sort of for the group of plants generally, but then they go into this incredible detail about specific varieties. It's just incredibly helpful. I agree. Lisa, you and I talked before, and you had said that, in a sense, you are working a veggie fashion runway house here at the Chicago (laughs) Botanic Garden. All gardens evolve, but when you think about the crop plans for next year, because they're already done, this this season, this design season is already wrapped up for you, what are you excited about as you look ahead to the 2017 year in the garden at the Chicago Botanic Garden? I think the reference to the fashion industry was really because we do our crop planning a year in advance. So like the, the fashion industry... You know, I think gardening has, there are so many trends involved in that. So the the idea that we put the plants for 2017, we finish that while the plants are in the ground in 2016. So um, for next year, we've planned uh, a couple of really exciting plantings. We're going to grow many of the All-American Selections, which is a group of plants that has been tested for garden superiority, and many hort professionals have tested those plants across North America, and we're going to have many of those growing throughout the garden area, and they'll be designated by signage. So that's a great way for a home gardener to look at a plant and know that it's tried and true and tested, and so they can you know, reliably count on growing that plant in their garden. We have also planned a Brazilian theme. So we're going to be growing uh, many of the Brazilian crops, which will kind of open a, a whole, hopefully, whole new group of plants to many of our visitors. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but sometimes on the weekends you hear 12 different languages spoken. So that international connection um, that cultural connection we have to plants is is important and it's something that we're we really cultivate and are interested in. So we're planting Brazilian crop. Um, and Brazil is the second largest producer of soybean in the world. And so we're going to be looking at soybeans, which seems common to a Minnesotan, but for um, many people, it's not. So that'll be fun. Um, I'm going to try my hand at sugarcane, which oh, wow. will be quite a challenge. And for people to be able to see what that plant looks like, we've been able to obtain some cuttings from the United States Landscape Arboretum, which is very exciting. It's in Washington. And so we're really looking forward to growing sugar cane. There are many root vegetables, tobacco, coffee. So we're excited about the Brazilian crops. And that'll be a garden-wide celebration of those crops and some of the uh, landscape architects' designs. And then, again, we're planting that succession of plants. So what you see in our vegetable garden is what home gardeners should be thinking about for their garden. And the timing of that, we're we're leading people through the gardening season by the timing of our crops. So we'll plant spring, summer, and fall. And we're always excited. I just had a trip to England where we've looked at many vegetable techniques that are exciting to translate for home gardeners here. So come and see us. Wow. And people should definitely come and check out the seed swap that's happening January 21st and 22nd, as you mentioned. Can you give us a quick overview of just how fantastic this event is? You and I chatted about it before. There's a lot that goes on in those two days. That's true. We've expanded it to for a whole weekend because of the popularity of it in years past. We've typically held it just for one day. So this year, it's going to be Saturday and Sunday, the 20th. 20- 
21st and 22nd of January. And the classes and workshops will be on our website shortly. And the, we ask that people register for those through the school at the Botanic Garden. But the admission is free. And so um, it's our sixth annual seed swap. And it's really a chance for gardeners to come together and share their seeds with us and learn more about starting seeds, saving seeds, and all the topics that go along with that. So you don't have to bring any seeds to swap. We'll swap with you and send you home with seeds. So many of the plants that we're growing here, again, the heirloom plants, the open pollinated plants, will be saved from the fruit and vegetable garden and then be available during the seed swap. And then the programming includes some of the classes that I mentioned earlier, planning your garden for seed saving, making seed balls, and there will be a family workshop. And then we're going to work on offering some tours of our seed bank and then have a film screening as well. So it, it should be a really interesting day. We have a seed historian coming who's done some work with the Pennsylvania Dutch in the Pennsylvania Dutch area gardens in Pennsylvania. He's a very famous food historian and seed saver, William Lloyd Weaver, will be here. And so I encourage you to look at our website if anybody's interested in coming and uh, learning more about seed saving. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Lisa, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they reach you and what's the best place to go? Because there's so many different aspects to the Chicago Botanic Garden. If they're looking up Regenstein and they just want to see Regenstein events, is there a specific place that they should go on the website? So the Regenstein School of the Botanic Garden is on one of the tabs. And so our website is so user-friendly, and I encourage you just to, to check it out. It gives you gardening info, plant information, opportunities um, at all of our different campuses. We're 385 acres here at the Botanic Garden with 27 display gardens. Wow. Um, so the school and the new learning campus is just really a sight to see. But our website contains all of that information. The class list is there and registration can be done on that as well. You know, at Chicago Botanic is Twitter handle. Yep. And then obviously our chicagobotanic.org is the website. If there is interest in reaching me, which would be great, I would love for your uh, listeners to follow me on Twitter, of course, at Hilgenberg8. And um, I'm also on Instagram, and I'm posting uh, pictures of uh, vegetable varieties, what works best for us as far as techniques or varieties in the garden. And I can be found at Hilgenberg8 on Instagram. Okay, perfect. Well, Lisa, I want to thank you for your time today, all this generous information, and really encourage people to visit the Chicago Botanic Garden the next time they're in town. Okay, good, Jennifer. Thanks right. so much. Hey, thank you, Lisa. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank Jody Zambolo and Lisa Hilgenberg of the Chicago Botanic Garden for being my guest today. I want to thank my team at Podfly Productions, especially David Myers, my editor, who always does such a fantastic job. Ayn Kadina, who writes the show notes for the show, and Dave Gregerson, the project manager who pulls it all together and keeps me completely sane. And I owe Dave a debt of gratitude because without Dave, I would have never gotten my holiday plan together, how I was going to manage production of the show in addition to all of the things that I want to be able to do with my family over the holidays. So Dave walked me through that the other day. We came up with a great plan for our Christmas and New Year's shows, and I just 
can't thank him enough. Well, just a reminder that I'll have all of the generous information that these gals shared on the show today, Jody and Lisa, and it's all going to be at my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And all you have to do is click on the tab that says Still Growing Podcast, and you'll have all of the show notes for every episode right there. Don't forget, there will also be a tab at sixfootmama.com where you can gain access to the Facebook group. So if you're having a hard time trying to find it in Facebook, it's called the Still Growing Podcast Group. You can look for it in the search bar on Facebook, or you can go to my website at sixfootmama.com, and there will be a tab there that says Facebook group. And all you have to do is click on that tab, and it will take you right into the group. And then just ask to join. And once that I verify that you're not a spammer or a robot, I'll admit you into the group. So I would love to see you there. Don't forget that it's a great place where you can share your own garden stories, pictures of your garden. You can ask questions, things that you're maybe looking for more information about, especially if you hear something on the show and you want to reach out to a guest and see if they have additional insight that they can offer you. That's a great place to do that because there are a lot of guests from the show that have joined the group. All the guests that have been on the show get invited to be part of the group, and they're also able to share any content that they have that they think you benefit from. So go ahead and check it out. It's also the only place where I post any giveaways for the show. So if you're interested in any giveaways that the guests or sponsors of the show sometimes offer, that's the place we go to find winners for those giveaways. So definitely check that out. I would love to meet you in the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. On next week's show, I'll be sharing my picks for gardener gifts for the holidays. I'm a shopper and I'm a gardener and I'm putting those two skills together and creating what I hope to be the first of many annual shows devoted to shopping and buying things for the gardeners in your life, including yourself. So stay tuned for next week. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.